to this episode of the 21st Folio podcast, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and film. I'm your host, Alex Heaney. I'm the editor-in-chief of Seven Throw, and today with on our panel we have uh, three guests. We've got Laura Ann Harris. Hello. Uh, I'm Laura Ann Harris, and I'm a contributor for Seven Throw, as amongst other online publications. And I'm also a playwright and a performer and director. And Caitlin Merriman. Hi, I'm Caitlin Merriman. I am just a random Twitter commentator who enjoys uh, making lots of jokes about Shakespeare. Uh, and Mary Angela Rowe, also known as M.A. Hi, I'm Mary Angela Rowe. I am a contributing editor at The Seventh Row, and I'm really, really glad we're doing another Shakespeare podcast. So today we're going to be talking about the recent film for television adaptation of King Lear, which was directed by Richard Eyre. It stars Anthony Hopkins as Lear, uh, Emma Thompson as Goneril, Emily Watson as Regan, Florence Pugh as Cordelia. It's like an all-star cast. Jim Broadbent plays Gloucester. Andrew Scott, also known as the Hot Priest, plays Edgar. Who plays Edmund? He was on Chewing Gum. I do know that. Oh, and then we have also um, Tobias Menzies is like an amazing Cornwall. Um, and Christopher Eccleston is Oswald. It's, it's just a stacked cast. Like they're, they're uh, yeah. Oh, right. Jim Carter plays Kent. The lovely um, Carl Johnson is the fool. Uh, John McMillan is Edmund. Mm-hmm. So now, Emma, if you could give us sort of a precy of what th- this particular film adaptation is. This is a modern television adaptation of Shakespeare's King Lear, set uh, with a contemporary setting in which Regan and Goneril are clearly several decades older than Cordelia. Um, Lear, played by Anthony Hopkins, is the sort of daughtery ruler of this very militaristic country. Um, he divi- At the beginning of the play, for those who have not read it, he divides his kingdom among his three daughters, according, but asks them to say, you know, describe how you love me. And the uh, fulsomeness of their description is supposed to be commensurate with how much land they're going to get. Regan and Goneril are flowery and OTT, Cordelia is simple and plain, and for that, Lear banishes her and divides his kingdom amongst his two older daughters, who turn out to be kind of awful. Mm -hmm. Um, They arguably drive Lear insane or hasten his madness, and Cordelia, who marries a foreign prince, hearing of the treatment that her father is undergoing, um, persuades her husband off-screen to bring an army to overthrow Regan and Goneril and save their father. This ends well for everyone. Know that we have divided in three our kingdom. It is our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths. What can you say to draw a third, more opulent than your sisters? Nothing, my lord. <laughs> well, nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Where's my daughter? By day and night he wrongs me. Every hour he flashes into one gross crime or other that sets us all at odds. I'll not endure it. 
Who is it that can tell me who I am? Why not by the hand, sir? How have I offended? You are old. You should be ruled and led by some discretion that discerns your state. Thou art my daughter, rather a disease that's in my flesh. Fly, brother, fly. Here I stand, your slave, a poor, infirm, weak and despised old man. To whose hands you have sent the lunatic king? <laughs> I am a man more sinned against than sinning. Better thou hadst not been born than not to have pleased me better. So what did everybody think of it? So this was the first time I found Cordelia a compelling character and felt like I understood what was going on with her. I would totally agree with that, actually. I felt the same way. I Most adaptations have portrayed her as like this wayfish, like very willowy, weak character who just dies at the end, like hardly has an arc. And I found her strong, powerful, very compelling, and totally relatable, which was really surprising to me. I think they also solved the problem of why doesn't she say I love you? Mm -hmm. Um, Like, it's almost an arrogance, I think, that I think one of the things that I really love about this adaptation is that I feel like all of these daughters, they all feel like they're sisters, and they 100% feel like chips off the old block. And... You know, one of the great things that I absolutely adored about Florence Pugh's performance is the degree of eye roll she gives her sisters during their speech. She's <laughs> like, are and, you kidding me? <laughs> and it's edited so that we spend, like, five seconds on her just rolling her eyes completely <laughs> and, like, staring at them like, are you... And then later, like, she's looking at her father going, are you really believing this? And then when she speaks, there's this amazing shot of her... her talking to her father and then her two sisters looking at her like, are you nuts? Do you not understand? Play the game! Mm-hmm. Make something up! One of the really, I mean, I thought that first scene was so, so well done um, because you learned so much. It conveys so much about the family dynamics really, really efficiently. And one of the things I got anyway from that scene was that Regan and Goneril have had a very different experience of their parent than Cordelia has. Like, because Cordelia, like, she's obviously the favorite child. And partly you know that because she expects Lear to agree with her, right? When she does that whole, I'm not going to say anything, she expects him to be like, oh, yeah, of course, they're being ridiculous. You're my favorite. You really get me. It's not that she's not playing the game because she's too pure. She's not playing the game because she expects him to be on the same page as her about this and she's surprised when he's not i think the great thing about the way that scene is blocked is that lear doesn't look at goneril or regan while they're spewing their bullshit but then he's looking right into cordelia's face and he takes everyone at face value like he believes when regan and goneril say i love you so much he's like 
okay, they love me. And then when Cordelia doesn't give him the pretty words that she says, he can't look at her face and see, oh, but she's, you know, sincere. Because it's not like she, it's not like she's like, oh, I don't love you, dad. That's not really the impression that I, that I got from her performance. I got her performances. This game is dumb. I'm not playing it. You know, I love you. Mm-hmm. Um, but he looks right at her and he can't decipher it. And so that sets him up as being already kind of out of it and not capable of making good decisions um, from the start. Yeah, definitely. Um, I found the emotion of their of Cordelia and Leah's interactions in that scene just really incredible it's the most emotional I've ever seen it um just the sort of really intense way that they both reacted to each other was um it was really amazing um one of my favorite bits of that scene was also uh Leah walking over and looking at the bust of his younger self like it was just a perfect example of of this this man's total lack of self knowledge yeah it was it was brilliant i really love how um with regan and goneril i think this is partly because we get close-ups um but you can see it within their whole bodies too is there's a lot of tension they're nervous Mm -hmm. they know that they have to play the game but they are genuinely worried about not just their inheritance but like they're looking for their father's approval And they do a really nice job of playing that vulnerability while also, you know, playing the game. And I think one of the things is that something something that makes this Regan particularly terrifying to me is the way she comes off as sort of nice and gentle. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, when we get to the eyeballs gouging scene is really terrifying that um, she and Cornwall are... Like, he's touching her face in this very gentle and tender way, and then he pulls her, and then he uses that same finger to, like, gouge out eyeballs, and then the two of them are getting hot off of it, and they're acting like it's no big deal. Um, And that's part of where Reagan gets terrifying, is she seems like she's sort of the sweet one of the bunch, but she's actually the worst of the bunch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to compare this to the... Um, Shauna McKenna Lear we saw fairly recently because the Shauna McKenna Lear was definitely Regan and Goneril had a point. Um, This is not quite so much Regan and Goneril might have had a point, but it does do a really good job of A, differentiating Regan and Goneril as characters. You feel them as distinct women with distinct drives. And B, suggesting that they know their father. Like, Part of why they're like this now is because they were raised by the man who curses his daughter out and says, I hope your womb is barren, you know? He's been like that for a long time, and you can tell by the way they react to him in that scene. I also like in that scene um, the way that, you know, they're all sort of formally arranged around the table, like just the way that this whole scene is set up, that you see them all walking towards this boardroom, and there's, you know, it's maybe the best way I've seen that Gloucester scene played where he's like oh it was so much fun fucking your mother Edmund Uh, because it normally is like why who are these people and why are we watching them yeah but because Edmund is set up as like a guard and they go they go past it it's a nice little you feel like the action is still moving and it's a nice little lead-in but I think it's especially good because they set up Gloucester as the biggest asshole in that first scene Um, that Colonel Sanders facial hair isn't helping anybody (laughs) yeah um but then 
throughout this throughout the scene with Lear, we can see we're either cutting to Gloucester, we can see him in the background, and he is severely judging Lear. So you're like, if even Gloucester, the major asshole, thinks you're doing a bad job, Lear, like, Mm -hmm. that's just, it doesn't get lower than that. And I think, like, going with that formality, one of the things that I really love, which you guys were talking about, too, about setting up the characters, is the relationships with the husbands. Because Goneril's husband is kind of a non-entity, whereas Cornwall and Regan, who I totally love their relationship in this film, they're such a team. And I love he gives her a little wink before she gives her speech, and then he gives her like a reassuring look afterwards. It's like a, it's clearly like a, you got this, babe, come on. And she looks at him yeah. and is like, oh, I didn't get the good land. And he's like, it's okay. And they convey this all without words. Yeah, it's it, they do so much amazing stuff where they're constantly communicating without talking. It's so great. And then at the end of the meeting, they're like people they leave the table and the two eldest sisters are with their husbands and they're conferring and they're like, "Yeah, we did it. We are okay. We got our land." And then you see um Cordelia off on her own and you really feel the fact that she doesn't have a husband and doesn't have a partner and is totally alone in this world in a way I don't think I've ever felt that before. I had so much so much to say about this production, especially everything it says about toxic masculinity, which is like, um, <laughs> that's the real bugbear of this King Lear. Um, also like bad parenting. Um, but one of my favorite moments in the whole play actually came really early in the film when Lear has decided that he's casting Cordelia out and he basically brings in her two suitors to shame her. To be like, well, do you yeah. want her? And Instead of wilting, she's just like, she just stands there looking defiant and is basically giving this like incredibly fuck you expression. And that's one of those moments where it's like, oh yeah, you really are your father's daughter. You're not even worried. You're just pissed. I just wanted to go back to the point about the daughters having a point. I know that you said that about another production. I actually did find it in this production though, because Anthony Hopkins is so like awful and grouchy old man, loud yelling, like Anthony Hopkins-esque, that it got to the point where I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of on side with the daughters <laughs> at certain points. And I wonder with some of the cuts as well, if that made it even more apparent as well, because I felt like there was a little bit of conniving kind of language between the sisters that I think might have been cut from this production. I'm not 100% sure, but I just felt like, their arc made sense to me in, in some ways, but at the same time, I actually was on side for, with them longer than other productions I've seen. I was just going to say, I think uh, I'm definitely with you on the cuts. Like, I feel like um, I feel like we watched uh, half of a Leah and then half of a different Leah just because of the way so much was taken out. But with the sisters, I think the thing that really made this film so much so much so different from anything else I've ever seen was the age difference and it was like the you've got Lear as sort of like in his 80s and then you've got Emma Thompson who's probably in her 60s and Emily Watson who's even younger and then Florence Pugh who's still like a baby and it just it sort of really backed up that incredible kind of um sense of these women all have very different experiences of their father and like it was yeah it was incredible um and then, like, it set that up so beautifully for the first half. And then because so much of the the kind of backroom 
uh, conniving and machinations got cut, um, it just feels like halfway through, especially Goneril becomes a completely different person. Like we don't see any kind of actual reason for why she changes so significantly in between what seems like a few scenes. Whereas Regan, it makes more sense because she's, you know, less actually emotionally affected by her father the whole way through. Whereas with Goneril, it's pretty clear that that's not the case. Yeah, I would agree. Like the switch, the switch was really quick for me. And it also was this, (laughs) the, the relationship between her and Edmund and actually both the, the sisters relationship with Edmund suddenly was like, what? (laughs) I'm sorry. What? I got really, I was like, wow, this got sexual real fast. And I did not anticipate that. Um, so that was fascinating actually, but also it, it had this sort of like that switch for me felt a little bit too, uh, too much. Um, and so for, for that, I I felt like Goneril's arc wasn't as seamless as Reagan's per se. Um, I felt like her arc was a little bit more seamless, uh, but Goneril's was a little, uh, I don't know. It it felt like a bit sudden and also strange as well. I was just going to say that I think how part of how I make sense of Goneril, though I completely agree with you that it does kind of fall off the deep end really fast. But one of the things that I really like about her is you get the sense of that this is the woman who knows who does the parent management, that she sort of held a lot of the burden of, <clears throat> excuse me, the sisters and the family. And you even get part of that by her choice of husband. Like she's chosen this meat guy because... She's so used to getting pushed around by her father that she just doesn't want to be pushed around by her husband. You also see her trying really hard with her father. Like, there's that whole scene where she's in a separate room and she's overhearing what's going on and she's sort of pumping herself up to be able to face her father. And I love the way she's totally a leader in that and you totally feel her strength while also you see how incredibly vulnerable she is and how... Um, how much her father's opinion, what he says, matters to her. But I think, like, the thing that happens, and I got a little bit confused with this, is, like, Lear's going around, like, kissing everybody on the mouth. Because um, he... <laughs> he kisses Corn Cornwall? Or... Doesn't he? I can't remember. He kisses, like... He kisses, like, a- he kisses Sorry, Albany on the mouth. And, oh, like... Okay. Right. Uh, it's really freaky and everybody looks freaked out by it. And then later on, he kisses Goneril on the mouth and she's just like, what is happening? Like, it's just, it's so great. And, and yeah, I, I'm going to rave about Emma Thompson more later. But yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, this is where it was sort of confusing to me because I, it, because he was going around kissing everybody, then it, it, it made it less like there was a thing with Goneril specifically. But then she also seemed so traumatized by the way he's kissing her and, like, when he throws his cloak around her that there is a real... They do a good job of showing her sort of, like, traumatized and that could be a thing that sparks change, but then it doesn't totally... We don't totally see how we how we even go from the scene where, you know, when they're negotiating with their father about how many, how many people he can bring with him. And Goneril and Regan are looking at each other and they're like cheering each other on they're like yeah yeah that's right you do it you you tell him and then they they hug at the end of it for support like how did they get from that to fighting over Edmund especially when you consider that 
Goneril, sorry, not Goneril, Regan has a solid marriage. Like, one of the things that I found kind of hilarious in this production is they keep getting woken up at night, and it's obvious that <laughs> um, Regan and Cornwall are, like, They've get been doing up, it. interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The comment earlier about how, like, nice Regan seems is really apt, because I feel like in many ways she's she's almost like a, a middle child taken to an extreme, right? Like she's been the forgotten one. Um, and she's been the one to like keep out of everybody's way and not rock the boat. Um, but she clearly needs someone to follow. And I feel like for her, the explanation of why she falls for Edmund is plausible. Because her husband, the guy she followed, is dead. And now she just, she needs another figure, right? She's not like Goneril, who seems very capable of standing on her own. Um, uh, the, like, dressing gown thing, uh, when they're standing in the middle of, by the way, I spent the whole movie, like, just recognizing all of the stately homes they were in from other things. Um, and the, uh, okay, well, Gloucester's house, aka the one that Regan and Cornwall were fucking in, um, was Queen Anne's palace and the favorite. Um, and, uh, Goneril's house was Gosford Park. So, and also Marnie's house in the hour. So they're, so they're standing in an actual Hatfield palace, which is like historically important, which is hilarious. And, and Anthony Hopkins is losing his mind and Regan is wearing a, a dressing gown. And I just love the fact that they had the, you know, reason, not the need, if only to go warm or gorgeous, you know, where, where Lyra's saying, well, you know, you you don't need to wear all of these fine clothes. They don't keep you warm. And Regan's standing there in a dressing gown. It's just the most beautiful irony. I loved it so much. Like, the costume design was really good. I actually found the costumes for the women so, so gorgeous, but also represented their characters so well. I mean, Regan kind of looked like she often had fur on, and was it was very flowy, and I hate to say it, but like she looked regal, regal Regan. But I, she just did. She like exude regalness and like sexiness, and I think it it said a lot about her character in terms of like softness, but something underneath. Like there were darker colors, and they were kind of meant to be earthy. And I think she was more kind of an interesting character in terms of her earthiness, but then also what's be- brewing underneath everything. And versus Goneril had these gorgeous, well-fitted, like, shimmering uh, satin kind of colors, really lovely purples and that sort of thing. And she just kind of almost looked like a queen all the time. Um, And I wondered if that was intentional with her character. Again, you were talking about the mother figure, and I felt like they dressed her appropriately to her age. But at the same time, there was an element of sexiness to it, but not not too much and um and then with uh Cornelia I like it was very youthful and earthy and kind of down to earth and not really showy and I think that actually spoke to her character and her like you know she doesn't need all that kind of stuff in order to be happy in the first scene um Regan and Goneril are wearing these sort of almost monochrome outfits And Cordelia, in this very sort of sober, like, we are prepared to go to a funeral if we have to kind of attire. And uh, Cordelia is just there in this totally beautiful, but also 
relatively casual satin blouse mm-hmm. and trousers. Was anyone else getting a like child of a second marriage vibe with Cordelia in this one? Definitely with Cordelia. Yeah, definitely. I felt like she slightly, she dressed differently than the other two. Um, and also had a different personality come out because of that. So I wondered if that was just maybe her, yeah, having a different mother or, uh, again, the generation gap could be also an indication of that as well. Yeah, I found myself wondering about their mother for like maybe the first time ever. I think I vaguely remember wondering about their mother in um, Jonathan Price's Lear that we we saw, but um, but nowhere near as much as this. Like every time they were in a scene together, I was just like, this is so nuts. What what kind of like it felt like almost three different women from three, three different marriages or three different sort of stages of Leah's life because of the the just the different ways they reacted um yeah and actually it was really funny I was just thinking uh Laura how you were like um oh it's Emma Thompson she was sexy but not too sexy and I'm like I had a real trouble with this one because I could not dislike Goneril at all because Emma Thompson was just such a babe the entire time like every time she was on screen she could have probably pulled Gloucester's eyes out and I would have just been like she was right um yeah because it was just she was just too good looking I mean like (laughs) she was she spoke so well I mean her performance was effortless it was so good and she just commanded my attention every single time and I think her clothes did that as well um but she just commanded the text she commanded the room she commanded her performance it was amazing um, for me, the uh, the thing, biggest thing for me with her was her, the physicality of her performance was amazing. Like during the whole um, sequence in her house, uh, I it was I think it was the first time that I've ever actually felt fear in those scenes. Like um, I remember uh, that like there's there's so many different ways that Goneril can react to, especially the you know the cursing uh, scene. I remember watching Francis Barber in 2007 in the Royal Shakespeare Company Leah with Ian McKellen in it and she she was sort of standing there being told you know that her womb should be barren and stuff and she reacted with with grief more than anything and I've seen Goneril's do it where they've reacted with anger or you know um, annoyance or whatever but with Emma Thompson it was absolute fear just even in the way that she kind of pulled made herself smaller pulled her limbs in towards herself and kind of was incredibly tense and you got this definite like impression that this she is terrified of this man and and just also the fact that they made the knights instead of making them servants or you know followers or an entourage or whatever they were literally soldiers and and it just sort of made you think about how yeah that vulnerability that she's really strong but a hundred soldiers in your house like running around breaking things it would be utterly terrifying so and she she really kept that up um for the whole the whole film she she just her performance was so physical and uh i think it would have been completely perfect if they hadn't cut quite so much out um that sort of made her her especially like the last quarter of the film that she was in just it just didn't make any sense but um that definitely wasn't emma thompson's fault so (laughs) yeah she was incredible i don't know if either regan or goneril love lear honestly um like in in the shauna mckenna production 
it was so clear to me that Goneril did love Lear and was just, had just been totally torn up by her mother. But in this one, I feel like Regan and Goneril might fear their parents' authority, which has clearly been exercised against them one too many times. Like, he's really volatile, and the threat of physical violence hovers over this whole production way more than I have seen before. Um, but I don't think they love him. I think the only one of the daughters who genuinely loves him is Cordelia. I think possibly um, they might, especially with Goneril, Regan not so much, I think it might be that the sort of love for a parent that a child has when they have been to various extents over their whole life, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally abused by them, that it's a it's a love that kind of manifests itself more in kind of uh, guilt and fear and hatred than in any actual positive feelings, but it's still there. It's like a very, very complex emo- set of emotions. Um, and it, that's, that's really what I got from Goneril. From Regan, I got, she's just, you know, trying to get out of this alive and, and, and the best off. Um, but yeah, um, I, so I think it, I mean, it might just be because Emma Thompson is amazing and, and, and because Anthony Hopkins was so, he played it so out of control that you kind of got that, that vibe from them. It's interesting seeing how both Regan and Goneril relate to Edmund because they relate to him distinctly differently. And I'd never seen that before because Regan's approach, as we get via her very public proposal, and which is in keeping with the Regan um, that we've seen characterized in her relationship with her husband, is like, take me and I'll give you everything. Marry me and everything I have is yours. Whereas Goneril has this much more proprietary, almost kind of predatory attitude toward him. It's very much older woman, younger man, you know? As you mentioned, in the first scene between the two of them, it feels really kind of predatory. It's like she's his employer and she's hitting on this younger man. Um, And we're not totally clear, at least at that stage, the degree to which this relationship is reciprocated at all. In the scene where Reagan makes this proposal, Goneril isn't even threatened or shocked. She just kind of rolls her eyes. She's clearly aware at least that Edmund has been two-timing her and doesn't care because she's confident that she'll get what she wants. And there's this close-up of her at the end of that scene before we move on. There's a close-up of her putting her hand on Edmund's back. Uh, Or it might be a medium shot of her putting her hand on Edmund's back. And it's the film's way, like, she regards him as hers and she treats him like he's a possession, which is sort of extremely Lear. I, I also found it was in this production they they really were forcing the viewer to look as at Edmund as the true villain within this piece. Um, more so than, I mean, definitely the daughters have that aspect as well, but I felt like it was really apparent to me that Edmund was the one kind of manipulating a lot of these situations and and he enjoyed this sort of... Uh, attention and being desired and manipulating the two sisters as well as Edgar as well as kind of the behind the scenes sort of story the the subplot of the piece and yeah it, it, it was clear to me that he that that was feeding off his uh ego that was feeding into his ego I should say and that they were really 
forcing that on the viewer in this production in in this particular way in this adaptation. But then at the same time, they um they cut out so much of the scenes that actually detail what Edmund does and what Edgar does. And so like, there's so many, there's like scenes where people get read out letters and scenes where servants interact with each other that just are completely missing from this production. And um, I was actually watching it with my dad, who's an English teacher and he basically knows Lear like word for word back to front. And he would just say, Oh my gosh, they cut this scene and they cut this scene. And Oh, it's interesting. They cut that line out from this scene. And it was incredible. Just, you know, he was sort of going over how much they, they cut from the sort of background machinations and and it it just it meant that you get that really confusing point where everybody seems to know way more than they should and um we have no idea how certain things have happened especially like like uh, Albany's sort of uh shift over to the other side of things makes no sense because we we don't know that he's been, you know, sort of filled in on on some of the stuff that's been going on. So it, it just, it's, it, it, I feel like it really made, gave gave the actor playing Edmund like a really tough job because he just, he ended up being kind of cartoon character villainy in a way because he didn't seem to have enough reason to do what he was doing it because we didn't, we didn't get that so much of, of his um, sort of, yeah the things that he did and 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 it also just really made the story seem like it happened over a couple of days you know like it cuts so much of the time and it's supposed to happen over weeks so I mean, you could argue that you could make an argument that it happens over months and it's like it just it feels like it it goes wrong so fast in a in an almost comedic way like it's very much to do about nothing like what is happening nobody knows but um yeah it uh it was very strange um so that's I mean that's probably my biggest critique like everything that I have problems with about this film comes down to how much they cut um because it really just it means that I mean if you're a Leah fan if you know the story really well it's it's a brilliant watch just for the interpretations and performances but if you don't you wouldn't have the faintest clue what was going on like Edgar's arc is completely incoherent they basically cut out his entire character it doesn't make that much sense in the original to start with point but why is he pretending to be poor Tom in this play is he pretending to be poor Tom who knows like no sense was made well, okay, I'm going to push back a little on that because the thing that I did like about it in this production is that you see, like, Edmund has persuaded Edgar that he's, like, in a spy thriller with, like, a Bond villain chasing after him. <laughs> and I sort of like that Edgar starts off, you know, as, a like, an astronomy professor. And so he has no clue what to do when his brother is, like, this military guy is, like, everyone's after you! And I love the scene of him, like, coming out of the basement of this palace and then, like, running around being chased by nobody, but, like, running for his life. And then when he ends up in in the woods, then you see, like, there's, like, 30 flashlights chasing after him. And I think that's one place where this adaptation to film really worked for me because I actually felt like Edgar was in danger. And I, if you're going to go, like, what, what might drive somebody crazy to take off their clothes and cover themselves in mud. 
I felt like, okay, yeah, I could see that here. But I did, I have to say, feel kind of ripped off by the fact that he was given a dress because I got all excited that we were going to have the hot priest as Edgar and he wasn't even naked. <laughs> I mean, I want to just go back and say that I agree uh, with Caitlin that I found uh, Edmund's, like the cuts were so fast and to the point where it was very active. It was rather than it was nuanced characterization or nuanced uh, uh, intentions, it was very action-based. It was a very action-based character, which I'll, I hate to say it, but for a lot of film adaptations, and I'm not just saying this for Shakespeare, but in general, tend to be, you know, let's get to the, let's cut to the chase and just get to the action. I feel like that's what they were doing here with this performance, which I doesn't mean I liked it, but I'm just saying I think that's probably where they were going. Uh, but then it did make it really confusing. And I, I remember the scene with Edmund and uh, Edgar at the beginning. I was like, what? What's what's going on? <laughs> what's happening? And then he's just gone. And I was like, what's happening? So it was really funny to me. And But at the same time, I did like how Edgar got kind of, caught up in it all and and that may and I hate to say it but kind of went sort of comedic which I don't think was intentional but I found it very comedic uh because it was so fast and there was like not enough nuance to really carry some of those moments but I think the intention of the director in this case or the writer the adapter was to make it very action-based so that they could just like cut to the chase with that storyline. It also makes no sense that we go from Edgar being just a poor little professor who doesn't know what's going on and like can't deal with these all these military people to suddenly he's challenging Edmund to a fist fight and he actually knows how to throw a punch. And conveniently he has Andrew Scott muscles. This production gestures at a couple of things that I don't think it really sees to completion in any meaningful way. But one of the things that it gestures at pretty strongly is the class divide between rich and poor in this kingdom, and the way it illustrates that all of this drama that is the focus of this story, this is one family having a little squabble in the grand scheme of things. And when Cordelia and her new husband invade the kingdom to redress a wrong done to Lear, they're hurting an entire country full of people who neither know nor care what's going on, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. It does have that sort of Hamlet thing going on of they can't get over their own problems and, oh, look, they're getting invaded. And I never really felt that before in that way, the way I did in this production. Yeah, the, th the thing that I felt that they they really they had something to say and they started to say something but they just didn't get enough time to actually say it um was the uh sort of the heath scene and you know leah's poor naked wretches speech happening in what looked to me like a refugee tent city right like it seemed pretty clear that's what they were doing and it just it it was such a a brilliant opportunity but they just didn't do anything with it they had it and then they moved on and um yeah, I mean, I think it, even just something simple like just do, having the poor naked wretches seen the speech done in voiceover as they cut between different people in this tent city maybe could have actually done something more to to kind of emphasize this message that they were supposedly trying to um, 
sort of project with the scene but um I mean I get it because Anthony Hopkins is amazing obviously and, and you want to see as much as much of him as possible but um yeah that and the and the um the scene later with his him and his shopping cart um I think uh really um it just it yeah it was almost saying something but didn't quite have enough time to say it I think the thing that did did really work for me was the fact that Kent was a soldier because trying to understand why he would keep following Lear like it makes sense under the in the context of sort of military discipline and the military hierarchy and I thought that was one of the best ways of trying to translate that to a modern setting um, because you actually believe he might follow him. I think the same was also true that when we were talking about how um, Regan needs like a man to follow the fact that Cornwall is a military man it gives her a certain degree of protection and gives him a certain level of status and then at the same time the way that um edmund is set up as a guard like you really feel this guy has been you know trashed by his father and he's sort of an outsider but also he's very capable because he's got military training which then kind of backfires when edmund when edgar manages to kill him like no way is that going to happen so I saw Ron earlier this year, and one of the things that Ron does really well as an adaptation of Lear is show how this family problem is actually a political problem for yeah. governance of this country. And that's sort of one of the things that Ron is interested in. This production isn't really interested in that. It is interested in showing how the the significant disparity between this this overlayer of upper class family squabbling and this underclass of people like the homeless people that we see Lear um, surrounded by intensity and like the people that Edmund and his father essentially the class of people that they become part of people who live precariously in poverty the way there's this whole strata of society that is totally unaffected by this family squabble over leadership until Cordelia decides to invade an entire country to redress grievances against her father. And then we see a lot of shots of like houses being blown up, like conventional middle-class dwellings. Like Edgar takes his blinded father into a house for safety and then leaves him there for reasons that are not clear and then returns back and his father has, has been killed. And it's clear that what they're fleeing from is not the forces of their own government, but the war, like the war that is encroaching onto the lives of ordinary people. Now, we never actually see those ordinary people, right? Because the production doesn't care enough about them to show us them, which is one of the ways I think this production falls short, because it gestures towards something without actually committing to it. But it does illustrate that Cordelia's decision to invade a country to get back at her sisters for being awful to their dad the people who pay the price for that are not anybody in that family although i guess that's also a very lear thing to do which in that sense is a good choice um i i think one of the things that i found really interesting just as far as the the gloucester and the lear's parallels go um and this is something that i think was really facilitated by the fact that it was a film adaptation is they sort of portrayed the two of them as men at the end of their lives who have their power taken away from them. 
And the way that that happens, it almost makes Lear, Lear's decision seem less crazy. Like, Lear knows to some degree, I think, that he's losing it. Because, it, well, I assume he does. Because he's, like, lost it from the beginning. And he chooses to give up his kingdom. And then obviously there's a lot of, you know, that was dumb and don't get old before you're wise. Um, but what happens with Gloucester, and I've never seen it portrayed this way quite so clearly, is Gloucester is, you know, at the top of the world. He's supposed to be in charge of everything. And slowly but surely, everything gets taken away from him. So, you know, first he's got... first. Um, Regan and Cornwall commandeer his castle and that has never been so very clearly shown to me before that that's what's happening and then that and that that's where they are but there's a scene where he's in his study that makes it so clear that this is his room because of the way it's furnished and how comfortable he is in it, and you realize that they are guests there and I don't think I've ever felt that so strongly in another production and so then when they start taking it over and he suddenly finds Cornwall sitting at the head of the table at breakfast, you feel like he's just had his house taken from under him. And then equally, Edmund steals his favorite son from him by telling him that, you know, he doesn't, that he's betrayed him. And, and then finally, the last draw is he loses his vision. And the fact that you see Lear at the very beginning looking right at Cordelia and not seeing her. You There's this nice parallel then that, like, Lear has his vision, but he can't use it. Whereas Gloucester has his vision taken away from him, just like he has everything else taken away from him. And there's sort of this sense that you wonder, if Lear hadn't given, it, given all this stuff away to his children, would they have taken it away from him in the same way that um, Gloucester's children took it away from them? And then it becomes to me something that's sort of like a tragedy just about old age and the way that, you know, they talk about before about the way that you become a ward, the parent becomes a ward of the child. And that that's going to happen whether you give it to them or not. And in some ways, Lear's decision to give it to them gives him power because he actually gets to decide how to divide it. Whereas Gloucester just loses everything completely and he has no control, even though he thinks he's, he has control. Um... So I thought that was really well done and really a really interesting um, take on it. Because then also when when you talk about what's sort of the tragedy of this, it's not I never really felt that badly for Lear <laughs> as far as like, oh, his daughter died and oh, he screwed everything up. But the thing that really stood out to me was the fact that he outlives his daughter's. And the way he outlives everyone. And I think part of the, the fact that they choose to have the fool die en route to the hospital in the ambulance. Like that's the and the way that those two are so closely twinned because they're both they've both got white hair and beards and they're really they look very similar. Um, that you see, okay, first he's outlasting his fool, and then now he outlasts all of his children. And it's like, he set up succession, and he doesn't get to have succession, because everybody ended up dying. And then, in the end, his it's like his failure is the failure to produce an heir that outlives him. As a sidebar, one of the things that I just realized in this production that I felt real stupid for never having realized before, 
Um, you were talking about the way that Lear and um, the way Lear and Gloucester are twinned. What Edmund says Edgar has done is precisely what Lear did to his kids. A, I felt like an idiot for not realizing that before. Like, great job. They literally say it in the text in words. But also, it just like highlights how clearly they highlight that in this production, especially given Gloucester's reaction to Lear is like, in the scene, is like, what are you doing? Really highlights that this is... It's almost like there are no good options for Lear, right? Because in this production, he's clearly suffering from mental instability at the beginning of the play. So he can't hold on to power because he's only going to get worse. I mean, if he were less arrogant, he could just stay with his daughters and not bring a hundred knights and then they wouldn't have had such problems. I mean, they would have gotten invaded, but, you know, he wouldn't have been looking for toasted cheese and homeless. The other thing that makes less sense in this production, um, just because of the setting, it would make sense, it makes sense in other productions because of the way they've chosen to stage it, but in this production it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why don't they just, like, give him a house? You know, buy a house, pay someone to keep him quiet. Then you have zero problems. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I guess all of this is sort of his power move, right? Is he wants to be taking care of his daughters. So, I mean, there's a lot of like, he has bad, bad options. And then also, but he makes really terrible choices with the options that he does have. I, but I do think there's this sort of thing about a, the narcissism of parents in this. I mean, what you were talking about with Gloucester, part of what happens is you're like, you just judged Lear and now you're doing the exact same thing. Do you have no self-insight? Um, and it's just like the way that they're all so susceptible to manipulation because they so rely on their children to make them feel better about themselves. I, I think that King Lear is one of the few plays of Shakespeare's where somebody can um, shave their head and put on a different outfit and somehow nobody recognizes them. Like in all the other plays, you're like, oh, come on, you definitely be able to recognize that person. But in this one, nobody sees anything clearly at any point. Like it, it's um, the whole thing is about uh, being able to see other people and see yourself and understand um, what's going on. And I think... Lear, I think the the whole sort of like Lear could just go and live in another house thing. I think the issue is that he is he wants to give up the responsibility of being a king, but not the power. And so, the idea of him just living in a random house somewhere, being looked after, is it's nothing like what he wants. He wants to be treated like he's still the king. Um, and I was just thinking randomly throughout this conversation about um, Kent and his physical transformation. And I was looking at my notes mm -hmm. and I spotted that I had written that I think um, Jim Carter's eyebrows should get a BAFTA because I think they did maybe the best performance in the entire film. So, yeah. <laughs> I also think one of the problems with Edmund is he's just so outclassed by this cast. Like, he's fine. But you can imagine if they cast Papa Siedu, who played Edmund um, at the RSC, like, that man has charisma for days. He would, you would be like, yep, I totally believe people would believe you and follow you. And I totally believe that these women would be throwing themselves at you. Yep, this makes sense to me. Who wouldn't? Yeah, I agree. Like, I, I thought, I thought, I thought this Edmund 
um, he lacked charm and, but he was attract, I felt like he was attractive enough for people to be attracted to him, but yet he didn't have the verbal kind of prowess that, uh, other Edmonds I've seen have had in the past. So I felt like he was, again, it, it could, it could all be the cuts as well that we just got this kind of skimmed down Edmund and we got this action packed Edmund, but we didn't really get a, a fully formed character. Um, I, I mean, there's an extent to which they could have switched the casting of the two brothers and it would have made a lot more sense, but I think um, they probably, I think part of the reason why they cast it the way they did was, I mean, a pretty clear choice in terms of like the ethnicity of your actors. Like I think um, if we're, if we're looking at it as being set in a kind of racist, imperialistic Britain, it makes a lot of sense for Edmund to be played um, by a man of color just because it, you know, it, it fits into the, the way they sort of behave. And the fact that the um, uh, France and Normandy were, uh, also both played by black men um, I think was sort of a yeah creating the idea of, of Edmund as a total outsider via his race um, yeah but otherwise like it seemed to me like if Andrew Scott would make a fantastic Edmund and um, you know the guy who uh, played Edmund in this whose name I cannot remember um, he uh, he would have made a totally passable eager like um, yeah, it was funny though, because, um, in the scene, one of the, I think one of the first scenes with, between him and Edgar, um, I think that was the only time in the whole film that I spotted a slightly dodgy line reading. I think the rest of the time, I mean, he, he took a breath in a weird, weird plot, uh, spot. And I thought that's a bit strange, but I don't think I noticed for the rest of the film, which is like kind of amazing because usually there's a, at least a couple of slightly dodgy um, line readings, but everyone was pretty damn perfect in this. Um, yeah. I think for me, part of what made, what I really liked about this as an adaptation or where I felt like this is why we need to make Shakespeare films is because you could cast these powerhouse actors in supporting parts. I mean, I was disappointed that they cut so much of Edgar because I felt like, oh my God, you have Andrew Scott playing Edgar. Maybe this is the one production where Edgar makes sense. Because you have this, you know, amazing actor who is going to be playing, like, Hamlet, which he did play on stage. He's not going to play Edgar, likely, in a stage production because he's too much of a big deal. But then they, they just stacked the supporting cast, you know. Like, Cornwall, I most productions I've seen, I can't tell the difference between Cornwall and Albany. This production, I was like, oh my god, Cornwall, I love you. Tobias Menzies, you are the ultimate posh tosser. You are amazing. I love you. Also, I'm so glad. Like, hi. Hello, Psychotic Cornwall. You can come sit by me. <laughs> uh, and, you know, even getting, you know, Christopher Eccleston to play Oswald. Like, the thing that I loved about that is that Christopher Eccleston could never, ever, ever in his wildest dreams be mistaken for posh. And so who better to have somebody who desperately wants to be mistaken for posh? So I think, I mean, and I think also, like, we have, we've been talking around Anthony Hopkins in this whole discussion, and even, like, I love Carl Johnson, but I felt like he was kind of underused as the fool. But I think that's also says something about the, I mean, I think 
part of that is, and we can have a further discussion about this, is I, I kind of feel like his Lear was not that interesting. Like, it was fine, but it was very traditional. And what was really really interesting about this production was how flushed out and different all of the other characters were. But it's also they were able to stack the cast so much that you have a lot of characters or points or themes that would normally, you know, get get short shrift. And in this production, you actually really get to see them. You know, the amount of time we spent talking about Cornwall and Regan's relationship and Goneril and her husband, I have never been interested really in those relationships in any production I've ever seen before. And I've seen productions where I loved Goneril and I loved Regan. Couldn't tell you who, who their husbands were or anything about them. Um, as to your comment about Anthony Hopkins, pardon me, I sort of disagree with you in two respects. Um, one, for most of the play, I really liked his Lear, but I liked that this was definitely chickens come home to roost Lear, you know? This wasn't Lear made a bad decision and he's suffering the consequences of this bad decision. This is Lear has been a bad parent for all of his daughter's lives. Mm -hmm. And that's why this is happening to him. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I liked that that angle was hammered home so clearly in this one. Um, and that a lot of the behaviors that he criticizes, you're like, oh, I see where you learned that from, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I thought the production did a really good job of establishing that parent-child relationship as something that extended back beyond the first scene of the play and that is reflected in how his daughters are living now. Um, but I did want to ask, how did everybody feel about the final scene? Because I felt that it was strangely flat. And I was wondering if I was alone in that. I loved the way that um, Hopkins played when he walks in with Cordelia, that he played it so casual and almost cheerful um, and then saved the sort of more histrionics for later in the scene that like it just um, it was so creepy and uh, much more upsetting. Um, so I really loved that. And the other thing I loved about that last scene was um, the obscenity of Regan's legs sticking out from underneath the covering on the like the cart for all the dead. Um, and just that was that was amazing. Um, I think quite a lot of that last scene just got kind of caught up in all of the crazy shit that happened before it that um, it was very hard to kind of come out of the like the fight scene between Edgar and Edmund not just like I felt like I was distracted for the last like for the next like five minutes trying to figure out how on earth that happened like how did he die like oh he broke his back how did he manage to do that so um I feel like if there'd been a some somehow some way of breaking those two up a little bit um I think the last scene would have uh felt much more kind of not flat but but like like a sort of a slow ending after this fast-paced kind of action-packed, you know, denouement. Um, but yeah, one thing one thing I loved overall about Hopkins Lear was the sense that he had at no point in this entire play did he have control over anything, uh, much less himself. And um, he he chose to go big in moments where for a long time 
productions have chosen to go small um and and vice versa so like uh i love the fact that during the um the scene in goneril's house much earlier in the play um with the knights he when he says you know is this not leah um he plays it off like a joke instead of a a sort of a an ang- angry thing or a confused thing he's he's mocking his daughter and and i felt like that was a really interesting choice and i mean i think occasionally he just goes full anthony hopkins um my god you're you're really acting the hell out of this um but like i thought that some of the moments where he chose to be smaller and quieter and more mild-mannered really gave it this incredible contrast and like complexity um yeah but it it definitely i think it sort of felt very abrupt that that change in the the very last point with uh, Leah's death after the um, the fight scene. Okay, I want to slightly amend what I said because I think part of what I felt was more that it was an ensemble story, more so than Leah's story. Because I think when I've seen other productions, even if other characters are done really well, you feel like all the other characters are there to tell you something about Lear. Um, and you know, when the daughters are horrible, it's like, or if the daughters are legitimately mad, it's there to tell you that Lear's a bad parent. Whereas in this, I felt like it was really about this whole family, this whole ecosystem that Lear's behavior, how Lear's behavior, you know, ricocheted and affected each of the daughters and how their behavior affected each other and how that goes back to like affect Lear. Like you re- I really felt this was an ensemble story rather than a Lear story. Um, and and I think that the film was more interested in it as an, uh, as a, as an ensemble dynamic than just, this is a great tragedy of Lear. Like the tra- I mean, even the tragedy is almost like how everybody has been so damaged by this guy while simultaneously turning into him. And it's like they're just going to keep... Well, they're dead now, so I guess <laughs> the damage isn't going to keep going. So I guess in that sense, it's good that his daughters didn't outlive him because that cycle won't repeat. But um, I guess part of it is I didn't spend a lot of the time in the film. It's not that Anthony Hopkins wasn't good. It's just that I didn't really spend the film going, oh, this is such an interesting Lear. This is such an interesting interpretation of Lear. Is like... It's almost like he was so good that it was not comment worthy almost. Like he's just like oh, so obviously their father and so like you understand all of their behaviors through the context of who he is, which means he's providing perfect scaffolding in the way that like you need a really strong Claudius in order for Hamlet to make sense. Um and so in that sense you need a good Lear <laughs> for Lear to make sense. Uh, which seems obvious, but um, but it's like you need a good leer to make everybody else make sense. And then what end what ends up being interesting to me, I guess, is because those other characters are not usually so well explored. Then what what's interesting is you know like Emma Thompson's performance. I have more to say about her than I do about Anthony Hopkins, and that's partly just because Anthony Hopkins feels like he's more like fitting into the machine almost in a way that the other characters they're getting to do something that I've never seen done with those characters before and part of that for sure is because they get to play off Anthony Hopkins 
Yeah, I completely agree. I think it was such an ensemble effort. And I think I totally, I, you stole the words right out of my mouth. I think because people were playing against Anthony Hopkins, their performances were more complex and interesting and, and shown in a different way than other productions I've seen. Um, I mean, Anthony Hopkins can like yell and get crazy all he wants. I, I just thought it was like really fun. Uh, he's quite playful as Lear in, in a lot of ways. But there was some quiet moments that I really was drawn to him as an actor, especially the scene with Cornelia in the hospital room, I think it was. Or, yeah, it, I thought it was so moving. I actually, I found that scene more interesting than I've ever seen it before. I, 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 I really was drawn to his performance even more so because his arc had, had grown, grown so much. And, um... Yes, I think he was I think he was doing the job. Like he did the job of Lear in terms of really selling this bad parent and then his arc of kind of self-realization and and being able to see his own actions. But yeah, it just it just ended up being an ensemble piece because as you said, the cast was so stacked. There was really no like there was there was a couple weak spots in the performances, but not a ton. And, and that made it really exciting to watch. Just about that last scene, that scene in the hospital, I, I really agree with you. It was really moving. I think just the way he looks at Cordelia and is telling her, you know, I'll drink the poison. He's so certain she doesn't love him. I think that was maybe for me the most heartbreaking thing because she's the one person who looked at him and told him, you know, well, she didn't say I love you like everybody else did, but she was the one person who you know, looked at him with love, um, and he couldn't see it. And then, you know, he pushes her away in the way that she's like, no, but I do still love you, even though you did this horrible thing to me. That was sort of like, the most sort of moving or the the kind of the heart of the piece for me more so than him dealing with her being dead. There was a, um, a physical choice that got made in the, uh, the last scene that we see him and Cordelia together, you know, will sing like birds in a cage, um, where he he brings he's standing behind her and he brings his arm round the front of her body and sort of around her neck and holds her to him, and it mirrors the exact same uh, movement that he made in the dividing the kingdom scene, but it was so aggressive when he did it that time. So he kind of grabs her around the neck in that scene, and you kind of you do feel that sort of volatility that this is this is violent but then in that last scene they're standing at dover castle and surrounded by soldiers and he's he's holding her like like he he loves her to pieces and it's it's just such a it was such a great callback moment um it felt like this this was the moment in which as as mad as he as he was he finally started to understand things and yeah I thought that was a really incredible nice little uh choice there one of the things that struck me um that I was wondering if I was actually off base about so criticism please was one of the things that Cordelia says when she's rolling her eyes at her sisters in that first scene is like if they love you so much, why do they have husbands? Basically, like, that's the sort of uh, overwhelming yeah, yeah, love yeah. that you're supposed to have for your partner when you, like, leave your parents' household and cleave to your, you know, spouse. Um, but along the theme of everybody in this play is kind of a hypocrite, 
Cordelia ends up doing everything for her father, and we, like, never see her husband again. And in that, in that scene, in that embrace, it's sort of like they're going to be the only people they see for the rest of their lives. And both of them seem, like, varying degrees of okay with that. I, th- I, I think you're on you're on an interesting track there because I feel like she was just kind of wedded off to whoever, you know what I mean? She was kind of just dealt her hand to whoever will have her. She doesn't have any land to offer. She doesn't really have anything to offer. So I, for me, I felt like she doesn't really care about her husband. And so therefore that callback of what she had said about her own sisters is, 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 maybe a projection of her own relationship with her father in a weird way, even though she downplays her love, uh, it is still the truest love that she has essentially. Well, and maybe she also doesn't need a husband the way the other two do. Like you see, you feel both Goneril and Regan sort of correcting their relationship with their father by who they married, you know, don't bully me or, or stand up for me, but let me fight my own battles until I need your help and tell me where to tell me what to do, which is sort of how I see Regan's relationship with her husband. Mm-hmm. Like they seem like they really needed that husband. And part of the reason they needed him was like to escape Lear. Um, but Cordelia doesn't have anything to escape because he loves her. Um, I, uh, one thing that's really hard to translate over into a modern adaptation um, that I think was done really interestingly here was that, I mean, uh, you guys were talking about Cordelia downplaying her love and like in a in the original setting you know in a early modern sort of British setting the idea of loving according to her bond is not at all downplaying it's the the honest you know expression of the love that a child bears a father you know that I love you because you are my father and that is a huge love that cannot be reduced to this sort of ridiculous charade that her sisters are engaging in and um it's it's pretty hard usually to get that across and people think well why didn't she just say I love you tons dad um but like she's sort of saying you know I I can't I can't declare that I love you more than eyesight because that's absurd but I love you because you are my father and I like I really um enjoyed the way that they sort of played it almost vaguely sarcastically that um Florence Pugh just sort of took a little bit of that snark that she had in her reaction shots to Goneril and Regan and sort of turned it back on her dad a little bit like uh, come on you know I, I you know I love you like this is this is absurd how on earth can you listen to this and and then when like we were talking about earlier when Leah um reacts the way he does to that she just looks shocked because she's expecting him to understand what she's saying and he doesn't um yeah it's um it's a fascinating way of of getting around that problem of of the idea of loving according to bond uh which nowadays just sounds like oh you mean you have to love him but um when it was written meant something completely different so i mean something i want to talk about is um the editing and the framing in the film because, I mean, the difference between film and theater, like on theater, you have all those characters on stage and you choose where to look. But on film, first of all, there's only so many characters in the frame or they might choose to put all of them in the frame. And then second of all, who gets the screen time? Like, are we watching the reaction shot of the speech? Um, and I think how they use that in the film was pretty interesting, including 
like one of the really strong points being Flor- how much time we spend with Florence Pugh rolling her eyes at her sisters and how we also get to see her sisters looking at her going like abort abort fix this fix this don't do this sister don't be an idiot um and so I just wanted to talk about those those choices and sort of if there was anything that stood out to you where you really you got a moment that we may not have gotten otherwise or or equally if you felt like things were missing all the little asides really helped um build character so for example when reagan is is saying her little speech and her husband winks at her and kind of nudges her on those little moments were really dynamic between the two and and honestly on stage you may miss that right versus on film you have those asides captured so perfectly in the frame so it allows us to you know build our imagination up of who these people are to each other and why they need each other the other thing um later on uh is (laughs) when edmund like grabs reagan's butt did we see that did anybody else see that was it just me? I really saw it. And I was like, what? <laughs> it was, but again, the director was kind of building all these moments in the frame for us to cap, like for us to either miss or catch. And again, it, it creates another backstory, another layer to these character relationships that we didn't have before. They're not in the script per se. So it's imbued by the director, by the cinematographer, uh, by the editor, uh, to capture these little moments in order for us to build more stories uh, that are outside of the script, that are just within the worldview of the play. Um, another scene where I found the framing really important was the um, the gouging out the eyes scene and just the sort of intimate yeah. way we, we stayed with uh, Regan and Cornwall um, and, like... Regan's always sadistic because she's Regan, uh, but that was the first time that it has felt like overtly sexual in nature. Like, um, I I think up until now the um, the most disturbing gouging out the eyes scene that I've ever witnessed was um, Monica Dolan as Regan in uh, again in the RSC uh, Ian McKellen production two thousand seven, um, just because of the physicality and the way she did it. But with this one, the the sort of like it felt like intruding on this kind of private intimate moment between between a husband and a wife but it was it was literally gouging a man's eyes out and that with the the kind of gore and and grossness that they brought into it it just it was so disturbing it was definitely the most disturbing um one of those scenes and it definitely also played against for me um Gloucester's kind of slightly polonius like uh, annoying older gentleman with a magnificent moustache kind of uh, thing um, and then suddenly you see him with his eyes gouged out and it's like how could you do this to Jim Broadbent um, but yeah it it was it was so captivating uh, during that whole scene I was like realized I was tensing and, and I just I couldn't look away from it um, yeah uh, and that that was just done with a sort of expert um concoction of acting and and perfect choices on where to put the camera and how long to focus on each each person and stuff like that like the thing that I really like in that scene 
we, like we get to see Tobias Menzies hands and then we get to see the fingers poking out the eyeballs and um, Cornwall is sort of like Regan in the sense that he's just so calm and cool in his cruelty and I love the way he can like tenderly touch his wife's face and then immediately use the same finger to gouge out eyeballs and the fact that they're both like in the frame looking at him and they're like so close to each other it's like they're hugging and then they get blood splattered on them and they're just they just look so aroused (laughs) um yeah yeah it was so great i can't i can't say enough about how much i loved that relationship this is not to do with either that relationship or cinematography or in fact really this production but my most vivid memory of jim broadbent as an actor is always him playing buckingham and richard the third um and he's such a recognizable actor that there's still part of me in this production that was like, that's what you get, Buckingham. That's what you get. But one of the things I wanted to see how other people felt about was the tinting of the film. Alex, there's some special term for this that I don't know. Um, but it's the way the film got generally leached of color, the crazier Lear got, until we were essentially watching a black and white film at the end except for those scenes in the military base between um, Cordelia and the French, which were all under red light, like it was a bordello. I think it's desaturated. I think that's the term. Okay. Uh, I found it very distracting, and I wasn't sure what effect they were trying to achieve, and I was wondering if it achieved a positive effect for anybody else. I think it was was meant to, uh, like, I don't know, just just the simplicity of, of of going kind of devoid of color, kind of devoid of wealth or materialistic goods. I wonder if that has something to do with it or the kind of uh, going back to one's roots or going back to um, the people almost was if that was the effect. I, I too kind of found it a bit distracting. Um it sort of felt like a heavy-handed choice, really, because it was really evident in that last scene, too. I felt like that last scene was very without, like, desaturated and, and without color. So I, yeah, I don't quite know exactly what it was trying to achieve, but I, my thought is possibly just to sh- really, really depict the arc of Lear and how he kind of became a simpleton and... By by becoming the fool, quote unquote, he he gains all the knowledge, and he gains the knowledge of of what went wrong for himself and his whole family. But I don't know if that needed to be so explicit in the in the in the coloration of the film. I mean, I feel like it's sort of of a piece with what happens in the last half hour of the film generally, which is a little bit of WTF. Um, you know, you compare how I felt about the first, like, I started tweeting during the first scene, and I had to, like, pause it. It took me, like, 20 minutes to get through five minutes, because I was taking screen caps, and I was so just in love with every minute and every second, and I kept going back to rewatch it, because it was like, oh my god, this is so amazing. This is so dense. This is so amazing. And then by the end, I was like, oh my god, could everybody just die? Um... And that's partly the you guys what you guys were talking about with the the cuts to the text, and then things just not making sense. Like, 
Edgar somehow winning a fight against Edmund and yeah and I guess I'm a bit ambivalent about the color scheme but I'm that's kind of like because of all the things that happened in the last 30 minutes <laughs> I can't say that that was the thing that really bothered me I think um so much of what that coloration thing was trying to achieve could have been a color it could have been achieved without it like um the the fact that the action all moves to Dover Castle and it's so different from the other locations like like um Hatfield where uh Gloucester lives is so decadent and sumptuous and everything's deep colors and and um you know sort of beautiful uh architecture and then Dover Castle is literally a castle that was designed to protect you from being invaded um so it 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 was like especially and, and you sort of think about that the similarity of the colors in Dover Castle sort of scene and the you know Dover Cliffs scene with um with Gloucester and Edgar and um you really those landscapes are already pretty you know devoid of of vivid colors and and anything remotely sumptuous or rich it's it's very you know white and gray and and light greens and and light blues and I think it was I think it was completely unnecessary though it probably didn't help that I was watching like a, a really low resolution copy of it on a very very high resolution screen so the whole the whole thing was a little bit difficult to um to sort of judge on that front because some of it was quite pixelated but um that especially it just felt like um it removed some of the the sort of viscerality of the the deaths that happen in that last part of the film as well like um I feel like Emma Thompson or Goneril lying with her what looks like her throat cut um it should have been much more disturbing than it was and I think the desaturation um contributed to that yeah that was another thing um to jump back to performance for a second I didn't believe Goneril would kill herself because Edmund died like, I just didn't. Goneril, the Goneril that I had seen for most of this production would be like, great, I run everything now. Again, I think this is a problem of cutting because we don't spend enough time with those two to see her develop a dependence on him or fall in love with him. Goneril's husband, a milksop. Regan's husband, yeah. psycho. Yeah. Um, I think that we're in an interesting time for Lear because we're in a baby boomer generation that's getting older. And I think it's a prime time to be doing a Lear, to be honest. And it's, and it's a look, it's an examination of the elderly that we're going to be having. And, uh, you know, this sort of sense that the baby boomer generation has been the most powerful generation. And perhaps that's an exam. I'm, I'm probably, this isn't probably the take of this Lear per se, but I think it could be a take of any Lear in our generation right now in terms of the way we're looking at that power dynamic. And, you know... Especially with looking, the economic uncertainty and inheriting money from your parents. Yeah, exactly. And also the generational differences between the daughters as well. Uh, I think that that could be aptly shown about how we're looking at all the generations right now in our society and how the haves and the have-nots, it's very clear what that power dynamic is. And 
So I think we'll continue to see that with more and more productions of Lear, plus the practicality of, you know, the situation, you know, finally Anthony Hopkins can play Lear, you know what I mean? And, and other older actors that are of that baby boomer generation can finally play Lear to the fullest extent, whether they're a female or a male, you know, whatever. But, uh, but I think it is an interesting time to be seeing a lot of Lear's being uh, produced because, you know, it, it is saying something about our generations as well as, you know, this current shift in the power dynamic. I also think there's um, Lear takes on a, a different um, kind of urgency uh, or feeling of, instability when you literally have worries about one of the uh, most powerful countries in the world being run by a senile old man with daughter issues and an inability to control his impulses like uh, not to name names but like (laughs) you know um it's uh, someone could absolutely do a uh, well no I'm gonna have to name names um someone could absolutely do Lear as Trump and it would make so much sense uh I mean it would still be very strange and I think off-putting to try and watch someone do Lear as Trump for several hours but um it's it's that sense of you know oh uh, for the first time in a long time the the kind of actual temperament of a world leader feels like it's affecting everywhere, like everywhere on the planet. Um, and yeah, I feel like maybe that, I mean, I don't think that came into this production so much, but I think that's also a, an angle that um, as, as time goes on, we're going to see more of in Lear adaptations. And I guarantee that somebody like some college is already doing that production of the Trump's Lear, like hundred percent guarantee it because I did a production of Tartuffe uh based on the Bush era and it was like we were we did everything in a in an Austin Texas accent and it was set in Texas and it was very much like trying to say something about uh the Bush era and Christianity during that time so I guarantee somebody is already on that (laughs) and they're doing it and and people are sitting through a three-hour Trump Lear. I think maybe also just sort of the awareness that we're starting to get, you know, thanks, partly thanks to Me Too and about, you know, toxic masculinity and about the patriarchy, um, that it makes Lear ripe for reinterpretation because, and probably why we're seeing a lot more productions where, you know, did the daughters have a point? Maybe they did. Um, and where it's really emphasizing how much it's Lear's own fault that like these daughters are not just cartoon evil they are people who were produced because of his behavior Um, and so that sort of approach to like the patriarchy and like it dying that seems to be sort of a, a very contemporary idea that I can't imagine maybe being done 20 years ago, maybe not even 10 years ago. Um, jumping off of that, um, there, the idea of f- familial love that underpins Lear is very different from the idea of familial love that we all think is normal today. Um, 
Lear seems to expect his daughters to love him because you love your parents. That's what you do. And if you don't love your parents, you're unnatural. Um, whereas now we regard the relationship of parents and children very differently. And I think that's part of why we're seeing all of these productions that examine indirectly what is Lear like as a parent, right? Be precisely what you said. This is this is the product of a lot of Lear's choices, but they're not the choices that happen at the beginning of the play. They're choices that happen before we even meet these characters. Well, and I guess we're also seeing Lear as sort of both a personality disorder and also having being the product of, you know, dementia or, you know, there are varying versions of exactly what is wrong with him toward the end. But I feel like a lot of recent productions like the Shauna McKenna one and even this one to an extent and probably the Simon Russell Beale one directed by uh, Sam Mendes like they're very sort of clear on Lear is, is a narcissist and looking at this as a portrait of a narcissist like a like a clinical narcissist and sort of thinking of it from that sort of psychological or psychiatric perspective which is a very modern idea like I'm he does have all of those traits and there you can easily like that's in the text but i could see him as being played more nobly or something you know or as like well that's just men um in the past whereas it, i feel like productions now are really criticizing his behavior like i haven't seen even in lear productions where you still feel bad for lear at the end i they always feel like they're really criticizing his behavior and that it's He's very clearly like criticized for being selfish and narcissistic and a shitty parent, and that that's not a thing that's okay. Um, there's one random thing that I wanted to mention because it intrigued me throughout the whole film, pretty much, uh, which was the horseshoe uh, that Lear has throughout so much of it. And I was just, I kept seeing it and being like, what is this? This makes no sense to me. I don't mm. understand what this is. And then I was sort of thinking about the the idea of the horseshoe as representing, you know, the circle that is broken, not only um, the sort of uh, the literal, like, breaking of the crown, but also the um, Leah's sort of loss of, of sense of himself, but also um, breaking up uh, sort of normal family dynamics and... Uh, inviting in this this kind of fracture of of the kingdom and and the fact that, uh, that I think that I love the the point where he um was wearing the fool's hat when he was playing this sort of homeless guy with the shopping cart um and uh he pulls off his hat and he's got the horseshoe underneath it and it's just something about it that I I don't even know that they necessarily pull it off that symbolism to to a huge extent, just again, simply because of how much they had to cut out um, and how much time they had to spend on action. But um, there was something really beautiful about this sort of idea of this man kind of clutching almost childlike to this random object and like holding on to it like somehow it represents something that he knows about himself that he's trying to hold on to. Yeah, I sort of, I got confused by that, that interpretation, and that actually helps me understand it a little bit more, because I didn't understand it at all, and I thought, oh, is he just, you know, he's lost all his luck, and literally the horseshoe is just, like, a symbol of 
this lost uh, man in in the world, and he's been so lucky acting out so long that he's been such an asshole for so long that finally his luck has run out, and he's like clinging on to this thing for dear life. Uh, but I actually like that interpretation a lot more because I love seeing it on his head and and the kind of the broken crown essentially. Uh, he's lost everything, and he he needed something to kind of help symbolize what he used to be in a way. Um, and I and I sort of wonder actually if that was an actor choice rather than a director choice because it seems like something that Anthony Hopkins would want to do. I don't know. I it just felt like such an interesting character choice that I felt like it was not necessarily the director, but maybe the actor who felt like they had this prop or something to kind of help symbolize that. And that's why maybe it was a little bit scattered within the film. Uh, and maybe it was more well drawn when they, before the edits. And uh, I don't know, that seemed like something that I think an actor would have pulled out rather than a director. All right. Well, I think then we're going to end this discussion here and that'll be, that's the end of our episode of um, the seventh row podcast on King Lear, directed by Richard Eyre. Um, you may have noticed that we raved a lot about Francis Pugh's performance as Cordelia and Florence Pugh. Have... Did I not say that? You said Francis Pugh. Oh goodness. Okay, thank you, Florence Pugh. Um, didn't even realize I slipped. Um, if you listen to the Seventh Row podcast, um, we just did an episode on Midsummer where we talk about Fran- Florence. Oh my goodness. Florence Pugh in that and also about her career more generally so if you're itching to get more Florence Pugh content that's a good place to visit um I know Caitlin's also mentioned a couple of times the Lear with Jonathan Price that we did an episode on that a while back which you can find in our archives um all at that that you can find at 21stfolio.com and the seventh row podcast you can find at seventh-row.com um or in any of the podcast apps that you might use. Um, so let, just as we sign off, we want to see get everyone to tell us where we can find you. Um, Laura? Uh, yep, you can find me on tour this summer. I'm doing uh, a new solo show, Destiny USA, at Edmonton, Victoria, and Vancouver Fringes. Uh, but my website is www.lauraannharris.com, and that's probably the best place to find me. And Caitlin? Um, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Caitlin Snark, uh, where I do a lot of snarking. And Mary Angela? You can find me on Twitter at Left Victorian. And I'm Alex Heaney. You can find me on Twitter at B West Cineast. That's B W E S T C I N E A S T E. And you can find um, our writing at 7th row.com. That's S E V. ENTH-ROW.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at 21stfolio. Um, and if you can rate, if you would like to rate and review this podcast, both the episode and the podcast itself, that would be amazing. Um, we'd love to hear what you think, and it would really help us to find new listeners. Uh, we'll be back soon, we hope. Mm-hmm.